and welcome to the Mental Minute with Michigan Medicine, where we talk all things mental health. I am your co-host, Jeremy Fallis, and with me today is your usual host, my esteemed colleague, Will Heininger. Will, how are things? Jeremy, things are great. Uh, Glad to have you on the podcast with me as well. Why don't you tell the listeners what's going on here? Yeah, so if you've tuned into this podcast before, you are already aware uh, that this format is a bit different. Uh, We're trying something new out. Will was and is an excellent host in interviewing our previous guests. And we just want to expand our conversation to include many other topics into our show. So here I am. I'm I'm Jeremy Fallis. I work in the Depression Center with Will. We're both on the education and outreach team. I am the marketing communication specialist. I do a bunch of web, graphic, and and writing design stuff. Uh, Will and I have worked together for over three years now. Um, we're excited to explore this format. We'll still include guests with varying skill sets and research and experiences and, and much more, but uh, we'll take some mini dives into other mental health subjects along the way and hopefully throw in some last two. And uh, and that's what we're hoping to accomplish today. We'll, we'll jump into a, a prescient topic, throw in some fun subjects and segments. Uh, we'll cap things off with the interview that Will did earlier uh, with Dr. Ma in the Department of Psychiatry. Um, he is the Director of uh, Pediatric Consultation and Liaison Psychiatry at CS Mott Children's Hospital here in Ann Arbor. Um, and so that's kind of, you know, how it's going. So with that, Will, it, this, this is on everyone's mind. Have you voted yet? Uh-huh. Great question. Uh, I have indeed voted. I voted this morning, actually. And how did you vote? I voted absentee ballot and dropped it off to the clerk's office. Yeah, I have mine sitting in my kitchen. It's signed. It's ready to go. I got to drop it off here at the Dexter clerk at some point later this year. Um, But, you know, the stress that a lot of us that are, you know, that we're feeling beyond enduring this pandemic and the change of season um, can be attributed to this election. And, And with that, it reminds us of a particular case in election history that's centered on mental health and shows how far we've come as a public and as you know, a treatment group you know, with how things were seen back in the 60s and 70s. Uh, would you like to expound on that? Yeah, Jeremy, you bring up an important example. And I was actually just learning about this recently, but in the 1972 election, uh, George McGovern running for president and had Thomas Eagleton on the ticket with him as his vice presidential nominee um, and, and Eagleton was forced to bow out of the race um, to leave the ticket because he had received mental health care. Pause. That's wild. <laughs> he, got, he got medical care for a part of his body so that it would work as intended. And the consequences for that, only 50 years ago, not even quite 50 years ago, in this country and in civilized culture, was that he is no longer allowed to serve us, um, to serve the the people that he would represent. So I find it um, appalling. I find it bizarre, but also important to look back and to understand that such a short time ago, we were living with an incredible amount of stigma surrounding mental health to the point where you couldn't hold public office. Um, We've come a long way. We talk about it a lot more. The show is an example of that. Um, But I just found that example particularly interesting that a candidate had to drop out of the race as vice president in this case uh, in 1972 because he had received 
ECT uh, or electronic shock therapy. So luckily we are not in that place anymore, Jeremy, but uh, as the election is around the corner, it was interesting to learn that that's where we were a few decades ago. Yeah, a little bit extra background on Eagleton. He was a senator uh, in Missouri, a U.S. senator, and he would actually go on to um, win 60% of the popular vote in 1974. And then in 1980, he was reelected once again. So it, it didn't derail his complete political career, but it certainly didn't allow him to be one seat away from the highest office in the United States. And you have to wonder... Um, you know, how many folks have been deterred by, you know, similar circumstances to Eagleton's? Yeah, absolutely. And you hear stories, uh, you know, in other professions as well. I know in some areas of the country for a long time and hopefully not still, but you couldn't serve as a police officer if you had received mental health care, which again seems so backwards because say a police officer broke their leg and hey, I need to get my leg fixed. I need my bone to heal so I can walk and move properly. Well, if you get this treatment, if you get your bone fixed, you're not allowed to serve us. We want you to serve uh, broken or with that body part not functioning as intended. It doesn't make any sense, Jeremy. I mean, we obviously need our brains and need them to be functioning well, especially when we're at work and when we're on duty is something as important as being a police officer. So, uh, the stigma obviously still exists. It's part of why we do the work we do and why this show exists uh, to bring mental health to the forefront and talk to experts about it in relatable, deliverable ways. Well, and it's interesting you mentioned uh, that you bring up experts, and, and we do have quite a few experts in the Depression Center, and, and one of them is Associate Director of, a, of the Depression Center, Michelle Reba. Uh, she's a psychiatrist uh, with us, and she actually had a piece um, that was, you know, she was interviewed by the M Health Lab uh, blog that uh, talked about five ways to manage politically induced stress, and this is more for voters and people who aren't in the political sphere per se, but it can apply to them as well. And um, you know, a lot of her, her quotes are very prescient about um, things that you just need to be aware of, even outside of you know a political arena. Uh, and she says some of the some of the things that you might be overloaded or overwhelmed, um, and this applies to a lot of things, would be higher blood pressure, weight gain or loss, you know, anxiety, worried feelings, drastic mood changes, sleep struggles. And like we said, that could apply to just being at home during the pandemic or taking care of your kids or worrying about work. Um, and she gives some very helpful things uh, to manage it. And, and the first one she says is be aware of how much time you spend engaging with political content. Be mindful of your surroundings when sharing opinions. Uh, be open to learning about other points of view. Step away from conversations and self-assess your interest. And, and the last one I thought was very good. Um, and she, you know, her, her direct quote is, if you want to be more politically active or engaged, be proactive, be cognizant of the physical and mental health effects it has on your body and what your motivations are for being engaged. And that's a very like self, a very reflective uh, a sense of where you are and what you're trying to do. Absolutely. And Jeremy, where can we find Dr. Reba's tips and tricks to handle uh, election induced or politics induced stress? So this story uh, was you know, updated earlier today, but it's been posted for several weeks now. Um, it's on the healthblog.uofmhealth.org uh, blog. It's also shared through our 
Twitter feed and Facebook, um, Depression CNTR for Twitter and University of Michigan Depression Center on Facebook. Uh, and it was written by Jordan Imhoff of the DOC staff here at Michigan Medicine. Yeah, we want to jump into a different segment right now. We are going to try and, and switch these up from week to week or from month to month, depending on how often we do this. Right now, this is going to be our October recording. Uh, we'll have one in November, uh, but we're going to do something called our mental minutes. Here, we're going to discuss a few quick fire topics before we do our guest interview with Dr. Mollis. If these go well, we'll keep doing them. They'll be fun. Um, so, Will, are you ready for them? Let's do it. All right. Our first one, how have you been staying mentally well? That is a great question. One thing that's been helpful, and I will acknowledge first that it's been a challenge to stay mentally well, especially during this pandemic and during these changes. But one thing that has been a step in the positive direction helps me move the right direction on that continuum of well-being that we talk about um, is just exercise, is making sure that I'm moving my body, getting my heart rate up, getting my blood flowing. Um, some of the fall sports or summer sports that I've been doing um, are ending. And so needing to find ways to continue to move my body. So I've been going for a lot of walks, Jeremy. And uh, I know I talked to you about even getting involved potentially with uh, refereeing or being an official as a way to stay around sports and to stay active in the winter. Yeah, I think it's so highly important to keep moving. Uh, it's something that I definitely struggle with when the winter comes around. Um, I, I enjoy being an official for soccer. I also enjoy playing the game. Uh, I try to walk every time I play around to golf. Um, I chase my kids around. There are a number of things I do, but as it gets colder and as it gets darker, which is the tougher one, uh, it's just harder to carve out time to do things. We, you know, I use the elliptical machine downstairs and I have to I have to completely agree with you. Staying active is just a great way to clear your mind. So uh, with that in mind, you know, the month is winding down. It's almost Halloween. What's the best advice you've received this month? Another great question. Um, I'm going to stay on the similar topic. And this advice came from my psychiatrist uh, via the Scandinavian countries. And it's a saying they have up there about the winter time. And they say, there's no such thing as bad weather, only bad clothing. And what she <laughs> meant and what she meant by that is sort of the way that they embrace, okay, it is going to be dark here a tremendous amount of the day for this period of the year. Um, we are not going to hold ourselves up inside because that is not good for us. So prepare, get the right gear, um, prepare yourself to be out in the elements and then go out and, and attack it, whether you're you know, working in it or recreating in it. Um, but I thought that was great advice as a way to continue to get movement uh, for me, in this case, talking with my psychiatrist, but in general, just an approach to the winter, because I know it's easy to stay inside, turn on that TV, you know, make that hot chocolate. And I probably still will do those things, Jeremy, but hopefully after I get my blood flowing a little bit. <laughs> I I can completely understand that. And that makes a ton of sense. And I love that saying, uh, you know, for me personally, uh, it's going to be trying to make sure that I don't use my device too much at night. Uh, one thing that's definitely helped my sleep recently um, is that I try not to use my phone once I go to bed. I set my alarm, I put it aside and I read a book even for 10 or 15 minutes or however long it takes me to fall asleep. Uh, and it just, it's, it's made me feel, ha have a deeper sleep and, and just feel a bit more well-rested in the morning. What That's is awesome. The, 
Yeah, it, it makes a big difference. It, it, you hear it. These are all things that you hear, right? And you, you know, and you're like, yeah, it makes sense. Uh, but doing it is the difference. And there's nothing like sleep when it comes to well-being. I mean, it's food, water, shelter, and sleep. Yeah, yeah. So what is, and this will be one of the last ones we ask you, what is the best thing that you've heard? You know, Jeremy, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this opportunity to give two answers because I cannot pass up the opportunity to share the best thing that I've heard is that the University of Michigan football team is playing a game this weekend uh, in Minnesota, Jeremy. I'm not sure if you are aware. Just kidding. Obviously, you are. Um, but that is very exciting to me, to many millions of people out there in the world who also share a love for this university of ours, this Michigan of ours. Um, the other uh, best advice I was reminded when I heard you talk through Dr. Reba's article a little bit, and it was one of those points, essentially check in with yourself. Like it starts with checking in with yourself, because if you are periodically asking yourself, how am I doing? What are the thoughts in my head? Do I like the way that I'm feeling? Do I like the way that I'm functioning? If you have that check in with yourself, then you can, it's the beginning of noticing I like it. I'm doing well. I want to keep going the way that I'm going or, you know, I'm not feeling the best. I'm having some thoughts that are troubling to me. I'm having some emotions that are unpleasant or making it hard to function. And noting that while also practicing mindfulness is just the first step to getting to change any of it. And so just that simple, like check in with yourself, you know, notice your thoughts, notice your feelings. Um, and then if you're somebody like me who sees a mental health professional, I can take that stuff to my therapist when it's time and, uh, and be able to discuss there. So yeah, checking in with myself is, is a combination of the best thing I've heard and best advice. That is great. You, that... You, you heard anything? Yeah. Thank you. You heard anything, uh, worth sharing? Yeah. And, and, and a note for our listeners, I'm sure this will probably come out after that Michigan Minnesota game has uh, taken place. But yeah, sports have, have been a great thing. The best thing I heard was actually today. My son hurt himself uh, playing in the in the living room and he is five years old and my 17 month old daughter, his younger sister, you know, he's over near the stairs kind of crying. I hadn't heard it yet. And she goes over, gives him a big hug and gives him a big kiss and his Aww. tears and crying immediately stopped at the silence of the cry was the best thing <laughs> I heard this week, this month. <laughs> so not the sibling love and compassion, but the silence. You know what? It was great afterward. He was like, he was very happy and proud of her. And that was nice. But the silence, sometimes the silence is deafening. Uh, understandable and uh, probably will understand more if and when I have uh, two young ones under the age of six in my house. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And before we do our obligatory news rundown and teases, uh, we're going to do a quick segment here called the Sports Minute. This is the Mental Minute. You and I are both sports people. We both played sports. You were a football player here at Michigan. I was a runner at St. Joe's. We both participate in sports. We both consume it. We won't make this about sports too often. That's why we are going to try and keep this to a simple minute. And we're not each going to get a minute. We're only going to get 30 seconds. And in this case, Will, I'm going to let you go first, and I'm putting you on the stopwatch right now. So your 30 seconds start now. Ready, go. All right, got a lot to get in. No, I am thrilled that Big Ten football season is here. Hopefully it is still here when this is released. Um, obviously, as a fan and somebody who – 
loves football and, and loves to see people compete. I'm excited, but I'm also so excited for the players across the country because participating in your sport can be a huge part of your well-being, and I'm thrilled that they are going to get a chance to do that coming up. All right. I should get an air horn for you so we make sure that we know when uh, your 30 seconds are up. We'll give you a 10-second <laughs> countdown, right? Um, I won't – yeah, I will try not to, to take up my whole 30 seconds, uh, but my sports, my 30 seconds is that it's getting cold. The golf season is winding down. And for me, that is upsetting because I've gotten the opportunity to go, get out so often this year. Um, I haven't been able to play anything else or officiate anything. So getting out once or twice a week has been tremendous. My game has gotten much better and it's just a great four or five hours to myself. Well, Stop. Jeremy, I'm gonna <laughs> I am gonna extend this segment by about 20 seconds to get your pick for the Masters. Since you correctly picked the first major of this year, are you gonna be able to pick the last major, which is usually the first major? Who you got? Oh, the Masters. You know what? the The COVID stuff is actually, uh, you know, it's gonna foul some things up. I will. I will definitely. I will tell you who will not win. It will not be Tiger Woods. I will. <sighs> be, I will be on record for that. I would love for him to go back to back. It is not happening. Um, I would have said uh, Dustin Johnson, but he got sick and he's not going to have some rounds ahead of him. Um, wow. You know, you're right. I picked Colin Morikawa for the PGA Championship. I Winner. I didn't want to do it, but I knew that Bryson was probably going to win the U.S. Open. I'll go with Justin Thomas. He hasn't won it yet. He hasn't performed great in the majors, but he hits it a mile. Uh, he hits it relatively. He doesn't have to hit it straight at Augusta, and if he can get the putter going, he'll be fine. So I will go with Justin Thomas to get his second major championship, his first at Augusta. Do you have a pick? You know what? I don't know golf nearly as well as you. Uh, I don't play it nearly as well as you, but it's fun to get out there, and I would like to see Jordan Spieth or Rory get back into uh, in the winner's circle in an important event. So. Hopefully one of them can take it home, if not Tiger. All right. Well, that will conclude our sports minute, two minutes, however you want to call it. And uh, let's wrap things up between us uh, before we get to Will's interview with Dr. Mollis. And Will, do you have anything else you want to add? Yeah, just that another Campus Mindworks plug. It's a fantastic mental health website, um, specifically oriented towards college students. There is content related to a variety of student backgrounds and experiences on there. So highly encourage you guys to check out campusmindworks.org for mental health resources and content uh, for college students. Aside from that, go blue. All right, and that will do it for this part of the Mental Minute with Michigan Medicine. Uh, be sure to rate us highly and subscribe so you know when new episodes are going to drop. Uh, we will begin adding a new podcast on Veterans Day with a special focus on veteran mental health. Uh, that'll be a very good segment that you're going to want to listen to. Yeah, uh, follow the it. depression. Yeah, definitely. Uh, follow the Depression Center on uh, Twitter at Depression CNTR. Like us on Facebook at University of Michigan Depression Center and follow Michigan Medicine on Instagram at UMich Medicine. And now here is Dr. Mollis. I am joined today by Dr. Nasu Mollis. Dr. Mollis, how are you today? I'm doing well, thank you. 
Thanks for taking the time to join us. Uh, Dr. Mollis was the Director of Pediatric Consultation Psychiatry and has recently been promoted, and get this right here, to the Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Service Chief at Mott's Children's Hospital. So congratulations on the promotion. Uh, how has it been adjusting so far? Thanks, Will. Uh, the adjustment's gone well. I uh, really enjoy supporting mental health care at the hospital and really influencing uh, pediatric care that we provide in our health system uh, and really supporting the emotional, cognitive, and behavioral needs of our patients and supporting families. So uh, it's it's a big task, but it's exciting that uh, we're continuing to support mental health uh, as part of uh, pediatric care at our hospital. Fantastic. And you are both a psychiatrist as well as a pediatrician. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you uh, became interested in those fields and the intersection of those fields? Absolutely. So uh, my background is exactly as you stated. I uh, both have specialization as a child and adolescent psychiatrist as well as a boarded pediatrician. I practice primarily psychiatry at this point in my career, uh, but I practice it in the medical setting. So my pediatric background informs how I provide psychiatric care. And I think it makes me more effective as an advocate for my patients and families, as well as collaborating with my colleagues in pediatric medicine, nursing, uh, social work and pediatric subspecialty services and connecting uh, psychiatric services and pediatric services in a more fluid way. Uh, and that opportunity uh, really was exciting to me. And, and I just I love the kind of fun, loving atmosphere of working with kids and adolescents and young adults and seeing their development. And so my conceptualization of how to do that was really in a pediatric lens. And I kind of thought about pediatric developmental behavioral specialization. I thought about infectious disease. I thought about hematology, oncology. And what I found was the unifying interest was really the fact that I liked complexity. I liked kind of working through systems of care, understanding how the biology influenced uh, the psychology and the uh, psychiatric disease presentations and social factors in, in care. Uh, and I increasingly became attracted to the idea of working closely with patients and family in psychiatry. We get to learn about patients in a way I think that is a tremendous privilege. Uh, we get a certain level of interaction that in other areas of medicine may be a little bit more challenging to develop. Uh, and the systems of care that involve psychiatric care are, are really vast, uh, whether it's the school system, community resources and supports, family systems, and the modalities of supporting patients and families are, are quite varied. And I really love the idea of being able to talk to people and use our words not only to communicate, but to heal and to artfully understand what people's experiences are. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about stigma. 
and I shared a little bit with you and my experience playing football. And, and one way we fight stigma in athletics is comparing the physical injuries to uh, a mental health issue and how you would get treatment for both. And without treatment for either, um, the issue likely wouldn't get resolved. I'm curious, um, in your work with young people, what have you seen be effective ways of breaking down stigma or even just explaining to them um, why this treatment is so critical, how it can improve their lives? That's a great question, Will. I think there's still, as much as we like to think that we've progressed in terms of our way of integrating and thinking about mental health in terms of larger health for for individuals, there's still a lot of stigma that exists. And uh, one of the unique things about my role uh, in the Children's Hospital is, is that I partly serve as an ambassador to uh, psychiatric services. For some patients and families, their first contact with a mental health provider can be when they're medically ill. Uh, So we have to find those opportunities where they are uh, and engage patients and families in conversations that are conducive to them uh, getting involved in mental health care. And I think it starts fundamentally with speaking to the patient's experience. So if you're talking at a patient or talking at a family and don't really understand what they are experiencing, what their values are, what their priorities are, what their other um, non kind of health related uh, psychosocial factors are in their life at that point in time, uh, you may be speaking over the patient and may not be an effective communicator. So uh, I use a modality of communication called motivational interviewing. It's a very common uh, modality of communication in, in healthcare in general. And the, the principle is that you walk alongside the patient and walk alongside the family rather than speaking at them. Uh, and really trying to tap into the values, experiences, emotions, motivations that really are impactful for them. And if you can talk to that, uh, as well as normalizing, which is, I think, what you were alluding to, normalizing mental health, that mental health is part of physical health, that we're all human beings, we all have brains, we all have brains that sense things, that feel things, that experience things, and those things are all connected and that we can't put things into neat boxes. And being able to understand that having mental illness is just part of the human experience. People have different variations and uh, experiences related to their emotions, um, their behaviors and such. Uh, but understanding that is just part of healthcare. And if you can normalize that and speak to the patient, uh, usually that's where you get that engagement. And once people are engaged and they feel like they have a trusting relationship where you're listening to them and not just telling them what to do, uh, they generally stay involved. And it may not be a completely smooth path, but if somebody's coming back, and coming to your door, going to your clinic, going to your, you know, calling you up, um, and they're still involved, there's always an opportunity for them potentially to uh, seek help and also uh, improve their lives through treatment. Uh, And so those are kind of the philosophies I take, uh, but it is challenging. I think there's still a lot of stigma and we have to recognize that and not just assume that the way we think about things or the, the things that we value are, are how patients are going to understand and experience those communications. 
Yeah, thank you for taking us through some of the ways that you address stigma. And I think we're lucky that more and more young people are growing up understanding mental health and uh, in the same ways that we understand physical health and that, hey, if I break my arm or any other part of my body that can break down, um, I have a choice to get medical care for that, to get professional help or to suffer the consequences of that body part not working. Um I look forward to having a, a time when all the adults are uh, people who were taught about mental health as, as young people. But I want to bring to you a question um, that I find challenging when I, I speak in schools and share some of my story. And this is a question that I get seemingly at every school. Um, it's one of the harder ones. So I want to put it to an expert, a true expert. And it's a student that says, you know, what do you do if you believe in this and you want to get better, but your parents or the people in charge of you don't believe in mental health or don't uh, understand or don't want you to get care? What would you say to a young person in that situation? And perhaps what might you say to parents that might help them um, see the benefits of their child receiving care? Yeah, and that that's a really good question, Will, and, and something that commonly comes up, um, and, and it goes in a lot of different directions, but that idea that there's some type of discordance between uh, what the individual wants, the individual uh, child, adolescent, or young adult, and what the parent wants, um, or another caregiver or family member, and how to navigate that. And... Um, one really nice avenue is, is school. So schools tend to have counselors, uh, nurses, uh, even um, a lot of the teachers and the principal. They are resources that can help uh, talk to uh, youth as well as kind of help them navigate systems. And, and in the school setting, it's a natural opportunity, especially since oftentimes mental health can affect social functioning and academic functioning, to be able to highlight to parents and other caregivers the impact that that emotional um, or uh, psychological factor may be having on that individual. Uh, it also is a place to get crisis services or get supports if you're really struggling. Uh, there are online resources and hotlines that can be used, and oftentimes th those are published pretty regularly uh, at your primary care doctor's office or at the at school itself. Uh, the primary care doctor is another uh, really important person who knows the individual since an early age and can oftentimes have the credibility to be able to navigate those conversations with families and, and to raise the alarm bells when the child or the adolescent may not be able to do that. Um, ultimately, in terms of talking of parents, again, I, I would go back to what I said before. It's the same type of principles of really trying to tapping into what their values are for their child and trying to help align that understanding of how mental illness may be impacting the child in a way that's really limiting their potential, but also causing them undue suffering uh, and um, really a, a negative quality of life. 
And so that may be uh, tapping into some of the values uh, w- uh, regarding the, the child themselves and uh, what they do well and how to kind of align that with seeking out mental health care. Uh, and sometimes it's actually not the mental health care itself. It's actually the perception of what that mental health care is. So, you know, a lot of times parents may perceive that they're going to lose control or that uh, there will be a breach of confidentiality and something will be shared that will be stigmatizing to the child or that somehow seeking mental health care will limit them from pursuing sports or pursuing the military or law enforcement or other practices, um, you know, even medical school. There's all these perceptions that exist that may be unfounded. And so parsing through that is really important too and making sure families understand. But ultimately the, the best way is to seek out natural opportunities to get help and to communicate. And I, I mentioned a few sources. Uh, and then also to uh, build that trust, right? So sometimes getting to that psychiatric provider takes a lot, but partnering with a primary care provider or with a school. And so I'm a big advocate of embedding mental health into natural uh, places so that it doesn't feel as stigmatizing and that it's easily accessible. So whether it's school mental health or having integrated mental health services in pediatric clinics, uh, those are all really uh, nice ways to make families feel more comfortable with having those conversations because they are really hard. And sometimes the reluctance for parents caregivers, um, and even the adolescents themselves in seeking care is that desire to want to avoid talking about it, thinking about it, dismissing it so that maybe eventually it'll go away or just being so distressed by the fact that somebody's suffering or that somebody uh, in the family is going through something that it's easier sometimes to not talk about it. Uh, than to talk about it. But in the end, what ends up happening is things get worse. Uh, and, and the person who is suffering uh, sometimes will struggle more and more. Is one positive that we can take out of um, this pandemic and the challenges we've, we've faced that telehealth has becoming more accepted and more widely used? And do you think that that um, will continue to improve access for people who, as you said, may not be able to get to a child psychiatrist, may not even know where one is in physical relation to them. Is that a positive? Has there been any positive signs in that area that you can share? Yeah, so I, I think the field was already moving to more telehealth and distance-based care prior to the pandemic. And and like many things, the pandemic just accelerated that process. And so I do envision that particularly in psychiatry, but in healthcare in general, uh, as much as we can use technology to extend our reach and support families in their local communities, I think that will be something that grows in the future. And in particular for psychiatry, patients and families have actually come back to us and said they really enjoy that virtual uh, care uh, approach because 
they oftentimes may struggle with transportation. They may struggle uh, with certain anxieties related to uh, leaving the home or certain, you know, for our kids with autism, some of the sensory experiences uh, that are had in uh, pursuing care in the uh, clinic setting uh, can be alleviated by providing telehealth care. And so I do think in psychiatry, there's going to be a place for this. Um, with that said, uh, I do think also in-person care is, is going to continue to be present because there's just certain nuances about the interpersonal experience of interacting with people in the office that are highly valuable to us as psychiatrists in terms of really understanding what people are going through, making accurate diagnoses, and having some of those challenging communications. So I think a hybrid of both will exist. And, and the last thing I'll say is outside of telehealth, which I think is a really important thing that we've learned and, and grown um, during this pandemic, I think the pandemic did one other thing uh, that may be a relative positive. And I think all of us, regardless of what our backgrounds or experiences are, have been put under some level of stress and duress through all this, whether it's through social equity issues, uh, through disruptions to our livelihoods of economic challenges. And so I think all of us, uh, to some extent, can appreciate the value of mental health going through this and, and continuing to go through this. And I think it's it's made some individuals that have been going through mental illness feel not as alone when they see other people are having anxieties and distress related to all this. Uh, and so I'm hoping that given what we're going through now, that that will also reduce some of the stigma around mental health going forward, because we can all appreciate when we've been traumatized in the way that this pandemic and, and some of the other events in our society have traumatized us, that there's value in being able to talk about it and, and seek help and treatment um, for that type of uh, distress. Yes, certainly hope that you know, one outcome from this pandemic is that people do uh, appreciate and understand mental health more, because as you said, there is more evidence for what we know, which is that uh, treatment works and that people who uh, stick with treatment uh, often see better outcomes. So I hope that it continues to be normalized. I want to be cognizant of your time. You've got critically important work to do, which is why we have you on the show. But uh, one last question. Um, you've been many places, and we like to ask uh, for a recommendation. It can be some uh, great food spot you uh, you visited along the way. It can be a, a location that's just beautiful. Um, but in the hope that COVID doesn't last forever and that we can travel again, um, is there any place along your journey that you would recommend to people or that just stood out? That's, that's a great question, Will. And uh, yeah, so I, um, I've been, you know, both uh, traveled internationally and uh, nationally, and there's a lot of great places. And uh, as a little caveat, so I um, actually did my medical school training, my undergraduate training at the University of Wisconsin. So I was a badger for a while, and uh, it was it was a little bit of a difficult transition. Uh, coming to the big house and uh, watching some football there and, and getting acclimated here, but 
um, you know, it's it's really hard not to to bleed maize and blue when you're when you're working uh, with such great people here, and and um, it's been a phenomenal experience. And there's great places in Ann Arbor, but I'm, I'm going to share one place uh, that's probably not what you were <laughs> intending to ask. But I, I trained in Pittsburgh. And, um, you know, Pittsburgh, I think, is a is a bit of a gem of a city because I initially didn't know much about it. Uh, and they've really kind of reinvented themselves um, since the kind of industrial period. And there's a really nice overlook uh, on Mount Washington that overlooks the city and the three rivers that lead into the city. Uh, and that's um, a really special place for me. We There's a nice restaurant up there, a seafood restaurant. Um, and we go there quite often um, when we visit Pittsburgh. Uh, but it's just a really uh, calming place. I met my wife uh, when I was in Pittsburgh. We had our first kid in Pittsburgh. Uh, and I just think about that that spot, uh, just kind of overlooking everything, getting on a kind of a, a global look of the whole city and, and the beautiful three rivers that are connecting um, the city. And it's just a really, really lovely view um, and just something really uh, special for me. So if you guys ever make it out to Pittsburgh, uh, check out Mount Washington. Um, there's some really good seafood places up there and a really nice view. That is a great recommendation. Uh, I was lucky enough to speak with the student athletes at Pittsburgh a while back and, and share my story. It's a gorgeous city, um, but I will have to get to Mount Washington when I get back there and, and definitely try those restaurants because I'm into that. <laughs> All right. Well, Dr. Malas, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate your time. And thank you to the audience, as always, for listening. This has been the Mental Minute with Michigan Medicine.